Father in heaven, here we are. We've been blessed already. We've heard scripture shared. We've heard our children singing about the incredible journey that these wise men went on. And Father, we ask that you would take us on the same journey of following after the star with all of our hearts. Lord, would you speak to us this morning through the power of your word? I pray that every other voice would be silenced, including mine, except for the voice of your word would speak, that your Holy Spirit would touch our hearts, and that we would be drawn closer to that precious King. We love you, Lord. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. You would have thought it was a day for a massive celebration. People piled in to the temple. And as they came into the temple, they began to do something that they had wanted to do for a long time. You see, on the temple doors had been erected something, this golden eagle had been put there, this eagle that was made out of gold. And this was a a symbol for Rome. And as they saw this, they said, finally, it's our chance. We're going to tear this down. We're going to pull this eagle off the temple. They were beginning to celebrate. The Jews were beginning to celebrate because King Herod the Great, they thought, was on his deathbed. They thought he was about to die. He was sick and they said, we're going to celebrate. We're going to throw the most massive party because finally he's going to die. You see, King Herod the Great was a tyrant. He was somebody who you did not want to mess with. As he came closer and closer to dying, he ended up putting to death three of his children because he was suspecting that they were plotting to take the throne. Anybody who seemed like they were going to take the throne would be put to death. He put to death his own mother-in-law. I should say one of his mother-in-laws because he married ten wives, so that would mean he had about ten mother-in-laws. This created a lot of the problem within his kingdom as he had a bunch of different children who were all fighting for who was going to be the next king. King Herod was converted to Judaism. He was an Edomite. Uh, an Edomian king, you might call him, and he was despised by the Jews. And so they sent this this massive uh, celebration. They began to celebrate because they thought that he was going to die. Unfortunately for these celebrators, King Herod didn't die. And could you guess what a king like this would do when he finds out that people were celebrating the fact that he was about to die? You probably guessed it right. He sent out his soldiers and they made a massive massacre of every person who was celebrating his death. This is not a character who you would want to even be friends with. He put to death some of his best friends for fear that they might be trying to take away his kingship. You see, he was one of the first Jews to be named by Rome as the king there. And he had done amazing things. Uh, The temple that that Jesus and his disciples were admiring when they were coming down uh, the Mount of Olives. That temple was built originally by Nehemiah, but it was enriched by King Herod. It was what they call the third temple. It was this beautiful structure with massive stones, and he had done so much to make that beautiful. He was somebody who was known as more of a Hellenist king, so he was somebody who was bringing in all of the culture from Greece and Rome, he, was, he would build these stadiums so that they could have their, their games in them. So little 
little needs to be said about how that impacted the Pharisees. We talked about the Pharisees last week and how the Pharisees felt about the Hellenists and those who were trying to bring culture in to be a part of the Jewish nation. And they were not happy with the things that King Herod the Great was doing. They were happy about the temple, but not about a lot of other things that he was doing. With all of this as a background, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. It's important that we have these things in mind of what kind of king this was that the wise men came to visit. Matthew chapter 2, a story that was well summarized by our Christmas program this morning. Matthew chapter 2, we pick up the story. This is probably after Jesus has been born, at least 40 days after Jesus has been born, because they have gone and they've had the dedication, which would have been at least 40 days, or they, they, they would have had the cleansing for, for Jesus, uh, which is 40 days for a male child. It may have been as long as a year or so after that, and we'll see some of the details here where Herod's actually asking them about it. But Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now it just tells us that they were from the east. We don't know exactly where the east, what part of the east this was. It could have been as near as Babylon. And in all likelihood, this is probably where they may have come from based on what they said. But it could have been even further east. At the nearest, they would have been about 400 miles away. Can you imagine a 400-mile journey that these men have come on? We'll find out a little bit more of that journey because in verse 2 it says, They come to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to what? We've come to worship him. We've come to worship this king of the Jews. Now, does this strike you as a little odd? These are what we call magi. Uh, We sing a song, We Three Kings of Orient Are. Unfortunately, it doesn't tell us that there were three kings. And we also don't find that they're kings. Magi were the wise men of whatever country they came from. They were the philosophers. And the Jews were spread throughout the diaspora at this time. The Roman government made it easier to travel, and the Jews had moved out into different areas. And you remember last week, what did we say that the Jews would do? Every time they had 10 people within a a village, what would they build? A synagogue. And they would build this synagogue, and they would come every week, and they'd worship there on Saturdays, and then they would have their, their reading of the law and all these things. And then during the week, they would have their children educated. They had a private school system, basically, in their synagogues. So anywhere where Jews were, and they estimate that there was hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Jews who were spread throughout areas such as even in Babylon. And there were many in Egypt. They were spread throughout the world at that time. And so when you find that these men are coming and they have this knowledge, that knowledge may have in part stemmed from the Jews themselves and their influence with their synagogues. They would welcome people into their synagogues. And at this time, of the the religions that were prevalent at that time, Judaism was special. Because all of the others, they would follow after their God and they they, they would try to appease their God. They would try to bring sacrifices to their God. They would do these different things. But Judaism was different because it was based on 
ethics that you didn't find in these other religions. In other religions, you could follow your God and then do whatever you wanted to do. But within Judaism, there was this code of morality that they followed. They were loving to people around them. At least that's what they were supposed to do based on their religion. They were careful with how they treated their family. You know, a lot of these religions would actually take whatever children they didn't want and get rid of them. They would only keep the child that was especially appealing to them. So they they didn't even keep all of their children all together as a family. But the Jews were different. They had their family dynamics. They had their worship that they held very dear. And they took their religion seriously. Now Jesus, in Matthew chapter 23, when he's talking to the Pharisees, we know that that they were very zealous about converting people. And Jesus, when he talks about this, he, he doesn't necessarily shed it in an entirely good light. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 23, and we'll come back here to Matthew chapter 2. But in Matthew 23... Jesus begins to rebuke the Pharisees for the ways that they are witnessing. What they would do is something called proselytizing. They would go out and they would seek to convert those who were of other nations and other religions. And in Matthew chapter 23, we find Jesus talking about how they would do this, how they would, they would travel around, uh, and we're going to be in verse 15. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win what? One proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Those are some pretty strong words for people who are going out and attempting to witness, but last week we saw that the Pharisees were missing the love of God. They were missing the righteousness. Like Romans says in Romans chapter 10, that they went about seeking to establish their own righteousness and they missed Jesus. They missed the righteousness of Jesus. They missed that relationship with Jesus. And here Jesus is saying, you go around, you travel, you try to make proselytes, but you make them twice the sons of hell as you. They don't really get the gospel. But apparently some of them did. Because here you have wise men who are coming from the east, 400 miles at least away. And they are coming and they have some idea about this king who's going to be born in Jerusalem. Now we know that there was a prophet who lived in that area of the world back in Numbers chapter 24. If you go back there, Matthew chap- Numbers chapter 24 and verse uh, 13, it tells us the story of Balaam the prophet. And, and Balaam, as he was going around, sorry, verse 17, he was called on by Balak, a king, as, as the Israelites are coming out of Egypt, they're coming along, and they come to Balak's territory, and he calls, the king, he calls to Balaam and says, you're a prophet of God, would you come and curse these people who are coming into my land? Well, as he comes to curse them, time and time again, God gives him this inspiration And these are some of the different prophecies that he gives. We find in Numbers starting in chapter 22. But in verse 17, he sees something special that he says is going to impact the world through the Israelites. In verse 17, it says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, 
A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. Balaam is given this prophecy by God that there's going to come a star that's going to rise out of Jacob. And this star, as it rises out of Jacob, it's going to be a what, does it say? It's going to, there's going to come out a ruler out of Jacob. So this prophecy would likely have been held dear not only to the Hebrews in the Hebrew Scriptures, but it would have also been given to those in that area. And Balaam probably took it with him, and, and they would have been able to study it, and it might have even become a part of their own literature. And they, this was actually a common conception. If you study around this time period, it wasn't just Jerusalem that got visited by Magi. There were actually wise men who went as far as Italy, and they came to Italy and they said, we, we think that there's somebody going to be born who's going to be a Messiah. The, the messianic hope of people was at a very high ebb during this time. There was a recognition that there was coming a deliverer. Now, most of the people didn't go to Italy. Most of them recognized that this Messiah was to show up in Jerusalem. So back in Matthew chapter 2, says, where is he who was born king of the Jews? These astrologers, they've got it. Probably they had more of the Hebrew scriptures, maybe due to the proselytizing that was going on, and they understood a bigger picture of what's taking place here. They say, where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Remember what kind of king Herod was. Herod was the king who, if anybody acted like he wanted the throne, he immediately killed them, even if it was his own children. Even if it was his mother-in-law. He would go ahead and he would put them to death. And so now when he hears these people coming from a far nation, and they're coming and they're saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? We've seen this beautiful star. Immediately you know that there's not going to be a good reaction. Verse 4, And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, you notice back in verse 3, it said that all Jerusalem was troubled. Everybody noticed that this was happening. This, this band as they came in Jerusalem didn't escape notice. They'd been traveling a long distance, and here they come, and Jerusalem is troubled. So Herod, when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them, where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star had appeared. He's trying to find out the exact age of this child at this point, trying to find out when this star began directing them. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. There's something fascinating in this chapter. There's a lot of fascinating things in this chapter. 
But in this miraculous showing up of God, I mean, this star doesn't follow the pattern of any normal star. This is a supernatural thing where God is leading people by this star. And first, he leads them to Jerusalem to grab the, the attention of everybody that's there in Jerusalem so that the, the entire talk of Jerusalem is, what's going on? You saw these people that came and they're saying that, that, that the Messiah has been born. But not only that, you find that there's two different responses that take place. And we shouldn't be too surprised by this. Flip over to Luke chapter 2. In Luke chapter 2, Simeon had made a prophecy about Jesus when he had come as a baby to be dedicated in the temple. And in Luke chapter 2, he says exactly uh, something very challenging to Mary. If you go to verse uh, 30, 20, 29 of Luke chapter 2, it says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all the peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Simeon, as he holds this baby in his arms, recognizes that he's holding in his arms the light of the world. That he's going to bring light, he's going to bring revelation to the Gentiles. But verse 33 continues, And Joseph and his mothers marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for what? What does it say? The fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Here it tells us that there's going to be two responses that take place. On the one hand, this is going to result in people rising. That people are going to be uplifted because of what happens in Jesus being born. But on the other hand, it's going to result in some people falling. That the thoughts of many hearts are going to be revealed. It's it's going to prick to the heart of people and it's going to be revealed on which side they are. And this is exactly what you see happening in this story. On the one hand, you have the scribes and Pharisees, who they know that there's something happening. There's all the people in Jerusalem are troubled, and they see that this is taking place. And they even go and they give the prophecy about how there's going to be a baby born in Bethlehem. But then they do nothing. They don't react. They don't go and seek out the baby for themselves. Then you have King Herod. King Herod actively and proactively seeks, as we'll see a little bit later on, to destroy this child. And then you have these astrologers, these wise men from far away who have come, who everybody looked at them as saying, hey, these are, these are people that don't worship our God. They're people that look at the stars for signs. They're people, they don't really understand what God is all about. And so, why should we listen to them? And these are the only ones who get the true picture of what Jesus has come to do. You know, it's pretty fascinating to recognize this light that is shining that people didn't recognize, that some people recognize it and others didn't recognize it. Go with me to John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, it gives us this picture of what Jesus has come to do. 
John chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What is the purpose of words? So some of you speak many different languages, and you're able to communicate with those different languages. If you were only able to think, but not to express that with words, how would it impact the people around you? I could just stand here and think. Pretty inspiring, isn't it? I'm thinking beautiful thoughts right now. (laughs) If only you could hear them. You see, it says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. Jesus is the very expression of God. It says that the Word was God. He is God, and yet He also expresses who God is. He reveals. He's God's thoughts made audible goes on to say, he was in the beginning with God. Get this, verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Everything that has been made on this planet, everything in the universe that has been made, was made by Jesus. That's how big Jesus is. That's how glorious Jesus is. That's how powerful Jesus is. He's made absolutely everything in the universe. He is God, and yet, look at what it goes on to say. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. It's giving us a little picture of what's taking on. And then it says, verse 6, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of the light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. Then look at verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Now, sometimes we just skip over a line like that, and we're thinking, okay, yeah. Jesus was in the world, and the world was made by him. That is mind-blowing if you really think about it. This is the God of the universe. Okay, so it's not seeming, I'm looking at your faces and it's not seeming to impact you. So, So I was thinking about this. I was thinking about what it would be like. There is a problem on this planet. There is a creature on this planet. I don't know if we should call them a creature. Maybe they're a morphed creature. I don't know what they are. But they cause a lot of problems on this planet. We might say that they're in rebellion and that they're creating a problem on this planet. Isn't that what planet Earth really was when Jesus decided to come and be born as a baby? It's a planet in rebellion. It was a planet that was shaking its fist against God, that was rebelling against God. Well, there's these little tiny creatures on the planet who cause a lot of problems. In fact, they're really, really small and they fly. Any guesses what they might be? Any kids have a guess what they might be? They have to do with with creating itchy bumps on you? Mosquitoes. So I want you to imagine this. I'll put up a picture here of a mosquito. They're pretty tiny, but on our screen it may look a little bit bigger. But imagine that we see that mosquitoes have a problem, and if only we could explain to them what human beings are like, and maybe work out a system where we could bring our blood to them, and they could like take that blood and not have this problem where they're contaminating us with malaria and these other problems. I mean, there are so many deaths caused by mosquitoes. Mosquitoes are more than just an annoyance. They're a deadly problem. 
And that's the same way in the universe. There was a huge problem in the universe because here you had humanity who was rebelling against God, who'd made all these accusations really against God, who were choosing to live totally against God, and that's dangerous for the universe. So imagine that I said to you today, okay, so the mosquitoes have a problem. They just need one of us to go and show them what we're really like. Would anybody be willing to become a mosquito for us, right? So tomorrow, we're going to snap our fingers and you'll become a mosquito. And just so you know, mosquitoes, male mosquitoes live about a week. Female mosquitoes might live a couple months if the environment's just right. Um, But we really need somebody to help the mosquitoes out. And this is really going to help the whole world out because we're going to help mosquitoes. I don't see a lot of hands raised to people that want to become mosquitoes. But you see, here's the thing. Ontologically, meaning the state of being of a mosquito compared to a human being is infinitely smaller. The gap between a human being and a mosquito is infinitely smaller than the gap between the the God of the universe and becoming a baby. To become a baby, to enter into creation itself, that is infinitely greater of a sacrifice. He was in the world, and he made the world. That's like drawing a picture of a mosquito and being able to make that mosquito move around on the paper and then entering into the mosquito's world. You yourself create this, and you become a part of it. Creator becomes a part of creation. And we become so familiar with this, we, we, we begin to just pass it by as, yeah, Jesus was born as a baby. But look at what John 3, picking up this story, and John, John 4, 1 verse 14, it said, He tabernacled among us, He became flesh, that Word became flesh. But in John chapter 3, picturing this story, verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world that He gave. Don't pass by that Word. He gave. Jesus came because the Father so loved this world He so loved you that he said, I'm going to give my son to this planet. I'm going to bring the one part of the Trinity, the second person of the Godhead, I'm going to put him into creation. He gave him to us because throughout eternity, Jesus will be human, fully human and fully God. This is a sacrifice that is beyond our wildest imagination. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God said, look at those little mosquitoes down there. They're perishing. I'm going to become one of them. Except for it was an infinitely greater step than that. Verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. That's the good news of Christmas. Jesus didn't come to be born in a stable so that He could come and bring condemnation into your life. So that you could feel condemned about not doing what's right in your life. No, He came so that the world might be saved. Now Matthew, when he gives the name Jesus, he says, and He shall save His people from their sins. He didn't come to leave us in our sins, but He didn't come to condemn you. He came to give you life and life more abundantly. 
But for some reason, despite the beauty of this, this, despite the fact that this tiny little baby who's laying there in a manger is the king of the universe, and despite the fact that he's the second person of the Godhead taking on human flesh, for some reason, some people turned away from that. They didn't want anything to do with it. And for some reason, some people like Herod decided that they were going to kill all the babies because they didn't want for that to be their king. What makes the difference? John 3 continues, verse 18, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Herod didn't want some other king coming in and taking the place. He didn't want to have to give homage to some boy who was born as a king. He wanted to have authority. He wanted to live his life in his way. And he passed by the most beautiful picture of love in the universe. And he missed it. And today, I don't want to miss it. I don't know about you. But I want for that light to soak into my heart. I want for my heart to be spread wide open so that when the light shines in the darkness of my heart, that the darkness does comprehend it, that the darkness is scattered by that light in our lives. God longs to do that in our lives. But here's the thing. There's a conflicting principle in our hearts that keeps us from experiencing the light. Here, it describes it as they love their deeds rather than the light. They wanted to do what they wanted to do. Basically, you might say they were selfish. Does that make sense? They said, I want to do what I want to do. I want to go in my way rather than to have what God wants for my life. In the Review and Herald, August 6, 1901, it says this, Love of self excludes the love of Christ. There can only be one king on our throne. There's either the king of self or there's the king of kings. And we have to choose between the two. Will we be so enriched by the love of Jesus that we'll follow him with all of our hearts? Or will we, like King Herod, reject that love because of the selfishness that's on our hearts? You know, King Herod, it didn't turn out so well for him. King Herod actually, he lived a little bit longer and he massacred some of those Jews who were celebrating his death. Then when he had the wise men come, he ends up, sending his soldiers to Jerusalem, or to Bethlehem, I'm sorry, to put to death those babies. In fact, let's, let's read about it in Matthew 2 here really fast. Matthew chapter 2, you see the, the results of selfishness in somebody's life. As he sees that, that the wise men don't come back, verse 11, we, we finish with verse 10. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. Somebody got it. These three, these, this group, sorry, this group of wise men got who Jesus was and they worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Some have postulated that the gold represented his kingliness. The frankincense mentioned like uh, acknowledging him as high priest, and the myrrh acknowledged that he was going to die as savior of the world. We don't know 
what was going through the wise men's mind. But we do know this, that what resulted in the hearts of the wise men was to give. When they saw this beauty, this love, what naturally flowed out of their hearts was gifts. They wanted to give to Mary and Joseph these precious gifts, which without, they would have been in big trouble. Verse 12, then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Verse 13, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Skipping down to verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Do you see the opposing results in the hearts? This is all brought about by the radical love of God. Jesus displays the love of God in a way that we cannot comprehend any other way. But we see in Jesus that this is who God is. That God steps down and He comes low. That like Jesus said, come unto me, you who are are weary and heavy laden, and learn of me for I am meek and lowly at heart. Jesus reveals that this is God's heart. That He's humble. That He's lowly. That He'll come and serve rather than to assert his authority. That his throne is established by love. That's what is revealed in the the crib there in Bethlehem, the manger there in Bethlehem. And yet, for some reason, it provoked Herod to murder babies. It's a wretched response to such a beautiful thing, isn't it? And yet today, how many Walk away from Jesus. How many of us see the love that Jesus has displayed on the cross and going to the cross and showing us that He loves us more than His own existence, that He would lay down His life for you, that He would rather you live than that He live if that were possible? As He lays down His life, how many of us turn and walk away from that as if it didn't matter? Or as if we would want to live our own life rather than experience he wants to give to us. And Herod, his heart began to harden even more after that. He had that experience when he was dying and then wasn't dead and murdered a bunch of people in Jerusalem. And then a little bit later on, he ended up getting even more sick and got some more diseases. This was about 4 BC. And so he moved to his southern palace. He built all of these different palaces around, but he went to the warmest one because it was winter time and he wanted to, to stay as warm as possible and it was Jericho. Jericho was 1,200 feet below sea level and there in Jericho he knew that he could be in the hot springs, he could be there and he could hopefully heal from this disease but as time progressed he began to realize that there was no way he was coming out of this and he realized that there was no hope for him. And so you know what he did? He called his sister Salome and he said, Salome, I want for you to go and arrest all of the leaders of the Jews. And so he went around arresting all of these prominent leaders of the Jews. And he brought them and they they put them in this, this stadium there in Jericho. And as he had them there, 
Salome came up, okay, I've arrested them. Now what do you want me to do? He said, here's the deal. When I die, I want you to put every one of these people to death so that people mourn when I die. Do you see how empty, how heartless he became as he rejected that beautiful gift of love? This is what self-preservation does in our lives. I love what somebody by the name of A.T. Jones wrote about self-preservation. It said, self-preservation is the first law of nature, but self-sacrifice is the first law of grace. In order to self-preservation, self-defense is essential. This is what King Herod was doing, wasn't it? He was defending himself. He was doing everything possible to grasp everything for himself. Self-defense is essential self-preservation. But in order to self-sacrifice, self-surrender is essential. This was the path that Jesus was on of surrendering his own life, of coming down, of coming close to us, of being Emmanuel, God with us. In self-defense, the only thing that can be employed is force. Herod was the one who was trying to kill everybody in order to protect himself. In self-surrender, the only thing that can be employed is love. In self-preservation by self-defense through the employment of force, force meets force, and this means only war. In self-sacrifice by self-surrender through love, force is met by love, and this means only peace. And Jesus was the Prince of Peace. He came to establish a kingdom of peace. He came to establish a kingdom that was not based on war, that was not based on self-defense, but that was based on self-surrender, that was based on loving, on focusing on the needs of others, on ministering, on healing, and His throne was established through love. Self-preservation then means only war, when, while self-sacrifice means only peace. But war means only death. Self-preservation then, meaning only war, means only death, while self-sacrifice, meaning only peace, means only life. You see, the principle of the gospel is that to give is to live. To self-sacrifice, to be focused on the needs of others, this is the principle of the gospel. And this rubs us wrong when we come against it and we see it and we are living a selfish life. This is what happened to Herod. This is what happened to the chief priests and scribes and Pharisees. They missed Jesus and his beautiful picture of love because they were all about their needs, their wants, and their lives. And in my life, how easy is it for me to fall into the same trap? How easy is it for me at Christmas time, at a time when we're celebrating this amazing gift? We have Jesus being born, and so let's, let's celebrate the fact that Jesus was born by giving ourselves gifts and and making sure that we have the happiest holidays possible and feeding ourselves lots of really bad food, really good tasting food. Not that all these things are bad, but do you see how even Christmas can turn completely selfish? So many of these things where we're trying, in the end, they just turn out to be totally focused on me. And in the end, that only produces death. But the outward focus, the focus on who God is, the focus on the love of God changes absolutely everything. In the book, Desire of Ages, it says this, to give is to live. 
This was what the the Magi experienced. They experienced the life that was a life of giving. A life that was to travel for 400 miles. And they're traveling at night. They were compelled by a love that was amazing. And their entire purpose was to give. They went all of that way. They worship this baby. And they give him lavish gifts. And then they go back home. They didn't want to take anything from him. They didn't try to get anything from him. But they simply worshipped Him and they worshipped Him by giving. To give is to live. The life that will be preserved is the life that is freely given in service to God and man. Those who for Christ's sake sacrifice their life in this world will keep it unto life eternal. Just like Jesus says, if you try to preserve your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give your life away, you're going to save it. The life spent on self is like the grain that is eaten. It disappears, but there is no increase. A man may gather all he can for self. He may live and think and plan for self. But this, his life passes away and he has nothing. The law of self-serving is a law of self-destruction. In the end, if we're serving ourselves, we're going to miss all the beautiful things that God has for us. I want to introduce you to a friend of mine. This is a picture I'm going to put up of our wedding That was about 10 years ago, December 30. We're going to have our 10-year anniversary. Best day of my life so far. Actually, they keep getting better. But to be married was a wonderful thing, but I don't want to talk a lot about that today. I want to talk about that young man who's standing in front of me. This was about 10 years ago, and his name is Andrew Garner. Now, I met Andrew Garner in 2005 doing something in Bakersfield that was uh, at the filling station. We did this series on... John 10.10, 10, The Abundant Life. And during that series, he and I became really good friends. This was a couple years before that, so he was an even younger boy at that time. And he would come up afterwards, I would do these survival tips where I was talking about how to survive in crazy situations and then maybe bringing out a little spiritual parallel from it. He thought that they were so funny, and we became friends through that. And pretty soon, we were close friends. And Andrew went through some really rough things in his life. He told me about how growing up as a boy, he was involved in gangs from the time he was just a little boy. He said, the only comfort that I had was to listen to rap music and to finger the little pistol that I had in my room. As a little boy, here he is growing up involved in gangs, involved in graffiti. He knew me a lot of things that I had no idea about up until that point. He was involved and so many different things. He lived a life that he had been tossed into and he found this community and gangs and in a life that, that could have led to an incredible life of harm. But the good thing was that, that we got to meet him and we became friends with him and, and through that friendship, it opened up more and more doors for him. And I'll just fast forward a couple, uh, a year or so after this to a time when he was attending Bakersfield Adventist Academy through some generous donations. He was able to be a part of an Adventist school and he was getting to get an education about Jesus and as he was attending this school he began to get into some problems with his home life. He was at one point living with a cousin but something happened and he was about to be taken away and I just I praise God for my in-laws. They're some of the most generous people on the planet and I'm so thankful for them because when this moment happened Andrew was in a a huge problem that he wasn't going to to be able to, he was basically going to become homeless for all that he knew. 
Well, in that moment, uh, somebody called my mother-in-law and my, my mother-in-law and, and father-in-law talked together, and they said, you know what? We're going to give Andrew the life that he's always wanted. We're going to give him this opportunity. So they went home that day. They, they, they had met with the social worker, and the social worker said, okay, you can have Andrew. He can move in with you. He can become like, like your child. You can make sure that he gets to school and, and feed him, and, and we'll be good to go. And so they went home, and, and they began to repaint the room because it was Leah's room, and they wanted to make it look like a guy's room. And they repainted the room for him. And they, they got a different bedspread so that it didn't look like a girl's anymore. They began to prepare this room because they were going to allow for Andrew to come and live with them. He didn't have to give anything for this to take place. He just had to come and be a part of something special. Then they sat down with him and they said, okay, so we want you just to be a 16-year-old. You don't have to worry about working those late night jobs anymore. We just want you to go to high school and succeed. And so we're going to take you to school. We're going to feed you and you just do your homework, and you can, and he began to say something. He said, so wait, you mean like I'll have to be home at a certain time? They're like, well, there's going to be a few, a few things. Like, you know, we'll have a, a curfew, and we'll have, you know, a few guidelines in our house, but, but we just want you to come and live with us, and we don't want you to have to worry about that job. We don't have to, you to worry about providing for yourself. And sadly... Andrew walked away from that. He had this setup. It was a dream come true for him. He could have succeeded in high school. He could have succeeded in college. He could have gone on and lived a happy life. But today, I don't know where Andrew is. Andrew eventually ended up running away and running off into a different life. And I can't help but think, why? Why is it that somebody would walk away from a love like that? And then I have to look at my own heart. And I say, why do I walk away from Jesus? Jesus has given me all of this lavish gift. He's prepared everything for me. He and His righteousness are enough for me. It's the mystery of godliness, 1 Timothy 3.16 says, that God was manifest in the flesh, that God came so we could be saved. It's a beautiful, incomprehensible mystery. And as I see that beauty in love, so often in my life, I've said, well, that's great, but I want to live my life. I don't want any restrictions on my life. Even if they're there because of love, I want to do what I want to do. Friends, don't walk away from Jesus. There is no better love. There is no better life than to live your life for Jesus. The one who loved you so much that he has become fully human throughout all of eternity, fully God and fully human, so that you can have the opportunity of life. Don't walk away from that. Nothing can compare to that indescribable gift. As Paul says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So this Christmas, how about giving all back to the King of Kings? How about saying, you know what? My life is worthless in comparison to what Jesus has to offer. How about saying, you know what? He gave His all for me, so I'm going to give back of my time. I'm going to give back of my resources. I'm going to give my entire life nothing. I'm not going to cling to my own life because in clinging to our own life, we only lose it. But when we give our life, 
to the king of kings. He takes them and he molds them into something that he can use, something beautiful and something powerful. By the way, that's my little niece there. Her name's Elsie, and she is a beautiful child. It's helped me to appreciate the beauty of a baby being born, (laughs) right? But here's the thing. The last time I went to see little Elsie, I love Elsie. But Elsie's at that stage, and those of you who are moms and dads probably know what this is like. The last time I picked her up, she had this fearful look in her eyes as she looked at me, and she didn't understand that I'm Uncle Zach that was with her in Hawaii, that loves her, that wants, wants the best for her life. Don't miss Jesus reaching out his arms for you today. He loves you. So often we misconstrue what he's trying to do. We miss the gift that he wants to give us, and we don't give our all back to him. I just want to invite you to just bow your heads with me this morning. As you bow your heads, think about who you're bowing before. It's not about the people who are in this room. It's not about any religious service, but it's about Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the God of the universe who decided to become a part of his creation so that you could see what the love of God is like. Oh, Father, we're here in this place and we recognize in some small way that this is beautiful that your love is incredible. But Lord, would you show it to us in more beautiful and more powerful ways? And Would you help us to surrender absolutely everything? Lord, all we can do is give you our will today. Allow you to make our choices for us. So here we are, God, surrendering our lives. And if there's anybody here who's never made that surrender, Father, I pray that just now, in the silence of their own hearts, that they would give their heart to you the King of Kings, because this is the best gift we could possibly give you. And Father, for some of us today, it might be that we recognize that we've been protecting our assets, we've been protecting our time, we've been trying to live a selfish life, and when we look at the life of Herod, when we look at the life of Andrew, when we look at people who live selfishly, we recognize that this is empty, that it's meaningless. And so God, I want to surrender my own heart in a deeper way today. I want to give more I want to live more completely for Jesus. Oh Lord, would you seal our hearts this morning? We know you're coming soon and we long to fall deeply in love with you. May this Christmas not just be about the lights, not be just about the good food, but may it be about the incredible love of the God of the universe who decided to display his love so radically and so beautifully. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.